1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let's begin.
0: I'm Torre, and welcome to Love City. A show about things we all love and the moment in time when we fell in love with them. And everyone loves Prince.
2: I'll be there for you
1: because you are my heart and I've and you.
0: That's Anthony Hamilton's group, The Hamiltons, doing Adore at a recent NYU event commemorating Prince's life and career. Prince died as I was finishing this show. We'd been working on it for months, and it's still hard to wrap my head around the idea of him dying throughout my life prince has been one of my favorite subjects years before purple rain i was a prince guy some of my greatest memories from my 20s are going to prince shows and then finding out where the after show would be and finagling my way up in there to see him in a more intimate space once i saw him well after midnight at sobs bringing the funk with quest love on the drums and D'Angelo on the keys. Just the three of them vamping on brown sugar. That was back when Prince was not playing the old songs, but those were the songs Questlove really wanted to hear. He looked at D'Angelo and winked, and then they leapt into the beginning of Darling Nikki. One of the forboten songs. A moment later, Prince disappeared from the stage. And the moment was gone. In my 30s, I went to Paisley Park and interviewed Prince and then played one-on-one basketball with him at Paisley Park. Remind me to tell you that story later. And in my 40s, I gave a series of lectures at Harvard that led to my book, I Would Die for You, Why Prince Became an Icon. I always thought I'd see him again. But one thing about being around him is he had a way of sort of disappearing. When I was at Paisley Park, I'd be paying attention to him, looking at him in the room, and then almost like an illusionist, he somehow just disappeared. And now he's done that to all of us. And all this has me thinking of that line from Another Lonely Christmas. Your father said it was pneumonia. Your mother said it was stress. But the doctor said you were dead. And that's all we need to say about it. In Love City, I'll be taking a deep dive into things we love, like Adidas toe sneakers or Kraft chocolate. But this first episode is special because we're talking about an artist I loved a lot. So to really examine why we all love Prince and when exactly we fell in love with him and why, I want to talk to people who knew Prince. People who loved Prince, like Susanna Melvoin.
3: I said, of course, I'd love that. I'd love to be your wife. From then on, we were a
0: engaged couple. We'll tell the story of how Prince proposed to her later. For now, I want to focus on the time when Prince was more loved than ever. 1984.
1: Everything about Prince in that
0: year was just, you know, he could do nothing wrong. That's Eric Leeds. And I played saxophone with Prince. Before Purple Rain came out, Prince would usually sell one to two million copies per album. But in 1984, he was a pop culture king Midas. In its first week in stores, Purple Rain sold one and a half million. And it went on to sell 16 million in the U.S. alone. A month after Purple Rain, the album, came Purple Rain, the movie, Prince, in his first motion picture. And in its first week, it was number one, edging out Ghostbusters by a few thousand dollars. After the release of the movie, the album went back to number one and stayed there for 24 straight weeks, dominating the last half of the year. So what did Prince do to jump so quickly from platinum R&B star to mega platinum icon who had earned global love. Just four years before Purple Rain, in 1980, Prince made Dirty Mind, his third album. At that point, guitarist Des Dickerson was part of the band. Prince wanted us to be like the multicultural Rolling Stones.
1: We definitely had this conversation. We had the, you know, I'm going to be Mick and you're going to be Keith. Trying to prove that, that I'm the most, Daring artist ever, I can get mm. away with saying things that other people, you know, won't say. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come out and, and talk about having Dirty Mind instead of implying. It.
0: Dirty Mind establishes Prince as the funkiest musician on the planet and the nastiest singer alive. 16, no Talking about sex with his sister. He was singing about Head, and he was opening up for the Rolling Stones, who he admired. But Prince was not selling a ton of records. Dirty Mind moved around 500,000 in its first couple of years out. Not an earth-shattering amount. Not a number that made him too big to get dropped from the label. He had to sell more or else. Susan Rogers was his engineer at the time.
3: He realized... That if he didn't do something that was breakout and extraordinary, this was going to be it. The record deal would be over, and then he was going to have to look for another line of work.
0: That was unthinkable. This line of work, being an R&B star, this had helped him escape from a painful youth. His parents divorced when he was young. He went to live with his father, but his father threw him out. Then he went to live with his mother, but that fell apart, and he moved out. A critical moment in his life. Prince would go forward in life forever bitter that his mother had let him down. Close friends said Prince's life was shaped around a lack of trust for anyone at all. Because if he couldn't trust his mother, then who could he trust? His feeling that his mom had let him down haunted him. After leaving his mother's house, he was functionally homeless for a brief time, going from couch to couch, until he was about 13, and he moved into the basement of a friend's home. You can imagine how all that must have felt. If he grew up feeling unwanted, it would not be a surprise. But by his early 20s, he's a musical star, with everyone giving him love, respect, and raucous applause. He absolutely could not go back. He had to get more. Susan Rogers.
3: When you're launched out of an unpleasant orbit, you're really happy to be in your new orbit. And you'll work really hard to stay there.
0: Des
1: Dickerson. For him, driven was just a continuous state of being. And he could rehearse us for six, eight hours, and then he'd go on the, the Windrum machine and keep going another four or five hours on his own.
0: He was aware of what he didn't do well and tough on himself about changing it fast.
1: His greatest strength and his greatest asset is the ability to recognize both what he is and what he isn't and work harder than anybody else in developing those aspects of persona that he knows he needs to develop.
0: Prince's next album, Controversy, came out in 1981, and it made him a bigger R&B star. It sold a million copies in its first few years, but he was still a genre artist. Eric Leeds. He was kind
1: of, you know, a, a very popular artist, but in a subgroup. He was still primarily a black artist playing mostly theaters and
0: some smaller arenas. Prince wasn't happy with that. He had to get bigger. As he chanced toward the end of All the Critics Love You in New York... Body don't want to quit, got to get another hit.
1: It, I mean, here's where it is. It's like, you know what? There are people who, you know, they love a good steak. But at some point, they torch the plate away and then savor the moment that they just enjoyed.
0: And there are other people that immediately order another steak. Turn it Prince was chowing down on a giant fame steak, and he still wanted another. A Fred Flintstone-sized fame stake. He wanted to be an international icon. He wanted to be pop.
3: It was kind of well-known by those of us who were in his camp at that time that uh, he wanted a pop audience. I think in his heart of hearts he's a pop artist. Um, He's got deep roots in soul and dance and folk music, but he's a pop artist.
0: He was ready to make the emotional leap from being the racy, edgy, enfant terrible of funk to being the sound of rock and roll royalty.
1: He understood what things he didn't have to do anymore in terms of trying to prove something. He didn't have to prove that he could be more dangerous or more risque than, than anybody else. I think he was able to kind of sublimate those things to a higher and more central
0: objective, which was to break through into huge. In late 1982, Prince released his fifth album, 1999, an astounding collection of soulful funk that included international lover and lady cab driver, And The Monster, that album did well, sold a few million, his biggest album yet, made him an even bigger star. He was starting to cross over.
1: You know, I I just remember doing a show in Jackson, Mississippi. It's like, holy crap, there's white people in the audience. There's a lot of white people in the audience. You know, and, and they're like hanging out in the, in the tunnel behind
0: the arena after the show. You know, what I mean, it's like it was a different thing. But Prince wanted to be the biggest, and at that point, he wasn't really close. 1999 was only the fifth best-selling album of 1983. The best-selling album of that year was Thriller by Michael Jackson. That established Michael as the biggest recording artist on the planet as it marched on to become the best-selling album of all time. Prince did not like being beaten by Michael Jackson.
3: He's competitive.
0: Susanna Melvoin is the co-lead singer of the family.
3: He was not going to let Michael outdo him in that genre. When Thriller came out, it was like, he he was going to outdo that. He was going to outdo it all. And he's incredibly competitive.
0: At one point, Michael sent Prince a song, an early version of Bad, hoping they might do the song together, hoping because Michael didn't know Prince that well.
3: When Michael did I'm Bad, he sent that track to Prince before he released it. And Michael wanted Prince to sing it with him. He wanted him to do, you know, can you do a, like a duet kind of thing? He was like, I've written this badass song and I want you to sing it with me. What do you think?
0: I think that could have been amazing.
3: He couldn't believe that Michael had the nerve to call it I'm bad. He was like, there's nothing badass about him. And he mm-hmm. could not let Michael get away with it. He said not only was he not going to sing it with him, he went in the studio and re-recorded what he thought it should be and sent it back to Michael. Like, no. And by the way, this is what it should be. And I mean, that was the end of that. But that's how Prince was. Seven, six,
0: five. Around that time, a little cable network started rising. Something called MTV. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll.
1: Welcome to MTV Music Television the world's first 24 hour stereo video music channel.
0: It launched in 81 and started exploding in 82.
1: I want my MTV.
0: At that point, they were just showing music videos round the clock. I remember hearing about it before I saw it. I was in middle school. Then I went to a party at someone's house where it was on. I sat down with a bunch of guys and we didn't talk or move for like two hours we were stunned. It was video after video. It was music visualized. It was singers taking over the TV for minutes at a time. It was subversive and countercultural and amazing. All over the country, MTV was captivating young Gen X minds. And Prince quickly realized He had to make his art more visual.
3: When I joined him in 83, he had a video camera and was making some short videos. He was uh, expanding his artistry into a visual realm.
0: He began thinking about how he could use video as part of his work. Alan Leeds was his tour manager during this time. That's how a lot of
1: people looked at video it was
0: just a promotional tool.
1: But he saw it as an extension of the art. He saw the the vast potential for, for video to enhance a song's impact.
0: But then those thoughts mushroomed into a larger concept.
1: Big thinker that he is, why limit yourself to a three and a half minute video for MTV? Why not do one for the whole album? I think the advent of MTV is the whole reason Purple Rain
0: existed. Prince went to his managers and demanded they get him a movie deal. Now, he was not nearly a big enough artist to merit demanding something like that. He did not, at that time, have an audience large enough to justify risking a Hollywood movie budget tens of millions of dollars to see if millions of people would go see a movie starring him.
1: Starting with the fact that he's a guy who's had only two pop hits but decided he should make a movie. I mean, it wasn't like he's the first artist to want to make him, you know, make a movie, but, you know, this was pretty
0: bold. But no one around Prince could tell him no.
1: First of all, he threatened his managers that, like, you know, if, if you want to keep me, you know, it's movie or bust. Get me a movie deal or we're done. So they had a, you know, they had their walking orders.
0: So while his managers were running around trying to find a studio that would finance a movie about Prince, Prince was working on a new album. And he was moving away from the funk that had made his name. He was moving in the direction of rock.
1: I was definitely pushing that, because I wanted to be a rock band flat out. That's all I wanted.
3: He was really focusing on guitar a lot. He was really making, not just rhythm guitar, but lead guitar playing um, an important component of his music.
0: He was exploring, and he encouraged the band to do so as well. Prince, in a recording session, actually told me
1: once, I want your attitude to be on this song for what you bring as if you've never played the instrument before. So I said, what, do you want me to sound like a beginner? You know what I mean? And I laughed, and he you know, laughed, and he said, well, no, but just, you know, like, you know, think outside the box. I said, cool, got
0: it. But one of the biggest riffs came when Des Dickerson left the band. Des had been Prince's right hand. Remember, Prince wanted them to be the multicultural Rolling Stones.
1: I'm going to be Nick and you're going to be Keith.
0: Then Prince's keyboardist, Lisa Coleman, introduced him to her girlfriend, Wendy Melvoin, twin sister of Susanna. Wendy auditioned for and then joined the revolution. Susan Rogers.
3: You've got this adorable 18-year-old. (laughs) Who knows every chord known to man Who can really, really play Who has a personality on top of it And um, it just so happens that she is romantically involved With this beautiful keyboard player Wendy? Yes, Lisa Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa
0: Wendy was a highly trained musician whose father, Mike Melvoin, was a pianist who recorded with Frank Sinatra, John Lennon, the Jackson Five, the Beach Boys, Phil Spector, and many more. Wendy learned a lot from him, and by the time she was 18, she was a monster. Susan Rogers.
3: Wendy brought that combination of Joni Mitchell and James Brown. Wendy was raised on Stevie Wonder, The L.A. sound that included the Beach Boys sessions that her dad would have played on. So Wendy had a catalog of music that was uh, very American and very deep. In addition to that Wendy has always been so remarkable with rhythm.
0: Wendy's musicianship helped change Prince's sound.
3: Wendy brought a deeper rhythm to his music. And she brought, just like Lisa did, other chords, more sophisticated chords that she would have known from all the musical training that she'd had. So she helped Prince go in that direction that he'd always admired and loved, that Joni Mitchell direction. And to couple that with also with that funk bass that she had was pretty damn strong. The chords that she's fond of a very really beautiful, subtle, sensitive, sophisticated chord. So Prince was able to expand his music in a, I, I'm tempted to say feminine, but that would be the wrong thing to say, um, It's a uh, more harmonically rich direction. That was a welcome addition to his music.
0: Prince was expanding musically, stretching toward a new sound, taking influence from bandmates and from outsiders, too. In the summer of 83, the band's tour was following Bob Seger's tour, which was much bigger because Seger was then a much bigger artist. Prince said, what does Seger have that I don't? Because I don't get it. For one thing, Seger had big power ballads like We've Got Tonight.
1: We've Got Tonight, baby.
0: That sort of song slows things down and really moves people. Prince realized he needed something like that, a big power ballad that would blow audiences away. You know, that lighters up or nowadays cell phones up moment where everyone sways and swoons and sings along. Once Prince knew what he needed, he and Wendy and Lisa began working on a new record that would be called Purple Rain. Prince was becoming pop. Purple rain,
3: purple rain.
0: Susan Rogers.
3: as his sound was was growing and becoming more pop, he he realized, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. but um it, it took a, it took a little bit of navigating because he as he embraced a pop rock sound, he had to kind of let go. He wasn't going to be James Brown after all. He was going to be closer to a modernized Sly Stone. And then fly was popped.
0: So a new sound was emerging and a new visual avenue was opening and the audiences were growing. It was all happening. With things really starting to percolate, Prince's legendary work ethic went into hyperdrive. Here's his tour manager, Alan Leeds. He'd
1: always been a hard worker, but there was at least some civility to it. But during the course of this, it was just manic. And it was it was almost like somebody was holding a gun on him and he was punching a time clock like, I gotta finish this, I gotta finish this. I mean, everything was like urgent, 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 urgent.
0: Susanna Melvoin.
3: He called at 3 o'clock in the morning like,
0: I'm cutting. That means recording.
3: I'm cutting. Where are you at? And engineers would be like 20 hours and one would go home for four hours of sleep and then Prince would be cutting tape and he'd be working the board. I mean, the only time he'd ever go home was to take a shower, change his clothes. He could go probably three or four days and then he'd go and sleep eight or nine hours and then he'd start again for another few days. And it would really only depend if things weren't done. No, he wasn't going to sleep. He would sleep for a couple hours then he'd get up and do it again. And people were dropping like like flies. He couldn't keep up. Could not keep up. I mean, you know, like the bodyguards and like some of the bad members, they'll be asleep in the studio like. And he'd be like coming in and out like, what's up? (laughs) But he never slept. It was non-stop for like three years. How could he not sleep? Um, Adrenaline. I think that that, whatever that endorphins and adrenaline, when you're in that sweet spot, you don't sleep. No no caffeine, no
0: no drugs, and no sleeping.
3: How? Sugar and endorphins.
0: Susan Rogers.
3: The things that were asked of us was incredible. Like staying up for 24 hours was just routine. And and there were so many times I was up for 48 hours.
1: How did you function?
3: You know there's the exhilaration of knowing that you're working with this artist that that this is your dream job, so you're so excited you just want to get the work out because I was a fan of his. that helped a lot. I couldn't wait to hear what we were doing. I was really excited by that. but the other thing is is you learn certain tricks you learn to drink a lot of water to brush your teeth um, uh, frequently to trick your body into thinking that it's morning um you you just you just do this. You, you do this. You drink coffee, but not too much. Um, um, eat well, but not too much. You just you just learn how to do it. You train your body to do it. But I think the easiest, the best way was that I was very happy to be there. Very very excited. Um, that's it's like Christmas, you know, Christmas Eve for little kids. You're you're just too excited to sleep. What was driving him was at that time when I was with him in the 80s, he was on top of the world. He was a young man who uh, was finally getting all the attention that he craved and had worked so hard for. His his music was being heard. It feels so good to know that people out there are waiting for the next thing you put out. So we would work uh, on a song day that was extraordinarily fast. Most people would take a song from beginning to end, from recording to, to mixing, to the finished product, would take about a week of studio time. You'd I mean, like about seven days. One of those days would be for mixing, but the other days would be for your overdubs and, and things like that. That was about average, maybe a song a week. Prince was doing a song a day, every day.
0: With that sort of pace and intensity and focus, you couldn't have normal relationships.
3: What was he missing? You know, I want to say close, close, true friends. If you're a young person and you want to be successful, you can say goodbye to a social life. Chris Rock said in an interview recently, he said he tells his friends, you can't be great on the side. It
0: is the byproduct of a lot of work. And he was an intoxicating leader,
3: Prince isn't Jim Jones, but what is that that makes people like, oh, like whatever you need, you got from me. He has that ability that, like, cult leaders could convince you that you're going to heaven if you follow him.
0: Meanwhile, no off in Hollywood. Prince's manager was working hard to try to get Prince a movie deal. Mike Ovitz owed Bob Cavallo a favor. Bob Cavallo, who was then Prince's manager. Bob had
1: brought him some clients when he first started out as an agent or some such story. And Bob went to him and just begged, please, please, please use your influence at Warner Films, we've got to get a deal. Mike Ovitz somehow convinced Mo Austin at Warner Records that
0: this could work. And Mo went to Warner Films with his considerable influence. Basically, two entertainment industry titans had a chat and decided to let Prince make a little movie. And thus, thanks to the old favor bank of Hollywood, Prince got a movie deal. But it was like one titan giving another a small favor for old times' sake. Every Hollywood movie is a gamble. This was going to be a small wager. The budget for Purple Rain was a meager seven million dollars. Purple Rain did not cost a ton.
2: That's Bill Blinn. I was one of the people heavily involved with writing the screenplay on Purple Rain. It was shot at a club in Milwaukee, so they they weren't building any sets. There were no major guest stars in the piece. But some people felt that at that low
0: price, this was not a bad wager.
2: They realized that they had a shot at rolling a seven without a huge bet.
0: It was going to be a 100-minute showcase for Prince's persona and his extraordinary ability to perform. The film Purple Rain was nothing but a really, really long-form video. Right.
1: <laughs> that it, all you needed was a narrative and a story just corny enough to capture the imagination of the people. But it was really about, okay, get, get to the performance scenes and the fact that, obviously, as an entertainer,
0: Prince was gonna be second to none. Purple Rain is a musical. The characters don't sing their dialogue, but the true purpose of the movie is to get to the many, many first-rate original songs Prince had written. Having a lot of songs in a script can be deadly. Musicals can make some of us pull our hair out, but not if you have Bill Blinn on the script. Blinn had written Fame, a popular 80s NBC drama about life at a performing arts high school where they would break into song all the time. Out of that experience, Blinn learned this rule. If the
2: music doesn't relate to and or advance the story, then I'm just doing a bill show.
0: Before Purple Rain, Bill Blinn had won Emmys for writing Roots and Brian's Song, and he had never heard of Prince.
2: I had no idea who Prince was when they offered me the job. Not a clue. I heard the name, you know, my kids were onto it right away. Dad's working for Prince, and my God, how can this happen? The first time I heard any of it was in his car, uh, a purple BMW driving around the lake in the middle of the night, because he had a really good sound system in his car, and he wanted me to hear it on a really good sound system. I, I know it's the cliche, but so what? It was so pretty, it was so melodic, it was so...
0: Integral in terms of its beauty, just musically. To say Blinn and Prince worked on the script together is a bit of a stretch. Blinn prefers to not work alongside other writers, and Prince could be dictatorial. He never said, let's do it this way. He said, we'll do it this way. But again, he was very pleasant to work with. He is about the work. And work is just about all he was doing then. He was finding recording studios almost every off day. There was just never
1: a moment's rest. It was always we would leave a concert and then maybe go to a club. And then it would be like, I need a recording studio after tomorrow night's show. So we'd move cities and then do another concert. And then at midnight, we'd be looking, looking to find a recording studio somewhere or an editing day because he was constantly working on the videos because singles were still coming out from Purple Rain during the course of the tour for which we were shooting videos. And of course for him, shooting means also editing because he's doing everything himself. Particularly since the filming of Purple Rain because now he's Spielberg and he's got to be involved with anything that has to do with film or or tape. Um, So I, I just can't Tell you how many nights we spent in recording studios or, uh, you know, video editing bays. And I, I just look back and say, when did any of us sleep?
0: Prince was building toward a frenzy. He was creating music and videos and a movie and a tour that were sexual and powerful and mysterious and fun and built around some of the greatest pop music ever made was all on message, all a perfect extension of the Prince brand, and it all worked together to propel him up into the pop stratosphere, an historically massive album, a giant movie, a tour that was doubling back to cities where they'd done theaters so that they could now play arenas, and the audiences were getting bigger and louder. He would come up from beneath the stage and say, dearly beloved, you know, we
1: gathered here, all of that the sound that came from the audience was like nothing I had ever experienced before. And all I thought, the first thing that crossed my mind, I was sitting there and I said, oh, I get it. This is what it must have been like to have been at a Beatles concert. And that's when I realized, oh my God, this, this isn't just the, the exaltation of, of a crowd at a rock concert. This is
3: mass hysteria. It was just, whoa. Okay, this is on a whole other level. That tour was so powerful, so huge. And he was in his element. He had never felt, I don't think he's ever felt
0: more powerful. Prince had become a massive global icon, a megastar. But deep down, he was still at heart a working man. This is illustrated by... What is one of the best Prince stories of all time? Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Rogers.
3: Prince told me this story, and this is my Elizabeth Taylor story. This was the Purple Rain tour, and we were in Los Angeles. So after the show, Prince was supposed to come backstage and meet and hang out with Elizabeth Taylor and her entourage. Now, Prince typically never went backstage after a show. He would come off of the stage. He'd get right into a car. The car would take him right to the hotel. He would shower, change, and either play an after party, or he would go into a recording studio and just work all night. So he did not hang backstage. But management told him, this is Elizabeth Taylor, this is L.A., you just have to do this. So Prince did go backstage afterward. now also in this crowd backstage was my quincy massachusetts boyfriend with a thick boston accent this was john Sacchetti. and john was actually an, an audio tech and a bit of a genius and john really liked prince and prince really liked john so john is backstage and John sees what everyone else in this room sees. Only John sees it differently. What's happening is Elizabeth Taylor has Prince cornered backstage. And she was wearing this white fur coat and she had the diamonds and she's there. And everyone in this room is witnessing two of the biggest stars, Prince and Elizabeth Taylor, having a conversation. So there are all these satellites just hovering and watching Prince kind of trapped in conversation with Elizabeth Taylor. And everyone's probably thinking how lucky they were to be in the room with these big celebrities. One person, John Facetti, saw something different. He saw a brother in trouble. <laughs> and John decided to throw himself on the sword. So John, with a beer in his hand and the thickest Boston accent that he had, Elbowed himself in between Prince and Elizabeth Taylor. And he's like, Yo, Prince, dude, whoa, the show was fucking awesome, it was fucking awesome. And then Prince got to look at Elizabeth Taylor and just roll his eyes and, oh, you know, who let in the nutcase, excuse himself and escape. So John made a complete ass of himself to allow Prince to escape. It was Prince who told me that story. And he said, he was laughing when he told it. He said, Man, That guy saved my life. He said, I love that guy. It was so great. It was so great because John saw who Prince was. He was a kid from North Minneapolis who was uncomfortable. And John saw a way to save him. And now bear in mind that Elizabeth Taylor's shoes were worth John Ficchetti's whole life. But John knew what to do. And Prince knew where that gesture was coming from and valued it. He wasn't an Elizabeth Taylor. Prince was a John Ficchetti. He was a working man whose work just happened to involve fame.
0: Prince continued working at a superhuman pace and releasing great albums and pulling off thrilling concerts and making bad movies. And in the midst of all that work, he tried to let someone get close to him he dated Susanna Melvoin.
3: Prince and I were very, very connected, very involved with one another. We were
0: a solid couple. She played him the music of Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, stuff he hadn't grown up really listening to. And that shaped the sound of his next album, Around the World in a Day, which recalls the trippy sound of the late 60s Beatles. The following year, 1986, Prince proposed to Susanna.
3: He'd gone to New York and he'd asked me, like a few days later, to come and meet him in New York. It was just on a whim. He was like, let's go out, let's go shopping. So he asks our driver, hey, where can we go to get jewelry? And uh, he says, well, Dunkley's in our palace just up the street. Why don't we just, you know, that's very close? And, he, and Prince said, yeah, let's go there. And we walk in and he said, I want to see your biggest diamond. And so they started bringing out all these incredibly beautiful rings, yellow canary diamonds, you know, triple white diamonds. Um, and, I, you know, completely, completely night, like, have no clue why I'm there. How long have you been together? Uh, off and on for years. And um, he said, what do you, you know, what do you think of this ring? I was like, it's beautiful. And he goes, okay, we're going to take that one. It was this beautiful pear shaped, beautiful white diamond. It was six carats. It was just enormous. He just said, it's a beautiful ring. Sure. And um, he says, he's writing the script. And he said, I want you to be the lead in it. I was like, yeah, I'd love that. And then the next thing I know, he's like, we'll come to Paris. And we're staying at this very beautiful Hotel de Crayon. And just having the best time. We're like very, very intimate. Very close. And it was just one night, three o'clock in the morning, he wakes me up and he says, you know, I want to talk to you. Can you come out on the patio? And it was just, you know, we're looking over the upfields and it's just this beautiful is coming up. And he's, he wants to tell me something. And I'm kind of panicked. I'm like, well, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening here. And he says, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. He said, isn't it beautiful here? I said, yes. And he said, um, how would you feel if you didn't do the movie? And I said, Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, is that what you're saying? I mean, you don't want me to do it. And he said, I don't want you to do film. I want you to be my wife. And I just sort of you know, just kind of overwhelmed at the moment. And I just, I'm looking at him, he's looking at me and he's so, he's, he's so gentle and he's so sort of reserved and sweet about it. And, you know, I said, of course, I'd love that. I'd love to be your wife. From then on, we were a engaged couple, right? So through the filming of Cherry Moon, I was in um, the south of France with him. You know, I can't say that it was always perfect. You know, it wasn't. And um, we were together off and on for a very long time after that. But, you know, and how it broke off and how we were not going to be married was a whole
0: other story. The why doesn't matter. It ended. Susan Rogers.
3: Susanna finally just packed up and left, and Prince was hurt. So after things like that, I would wait to see, is there going to be a song about it? And sure enough, there was one day he'd tell me in advance, here's what I want set up. So i the piano and, and getting the long reverb, which was what we would do for ballads. And he came down with the lyrics written, and he just moved from instrument to instrument, doing piano and drums. And this song was unique in that it had a long intro. And he's talking to his friend Wally. If you remember, Wally was one of his backup dancers. And uh, he's saying, hey, those are nice glasses. Can I try them on? Because I'm going to a party tonight and I want to look so clean because my woman left me. And then he goes into the chorus and the melody is just one long refrain of the word, oh my la dee da, which is... Morphs into oh my melody and oh my malady, and he talked about it. He said, you know, the French word melody means sickness, and isn't that funny that it's similar to la di da? The chorus was just oh my la di da, oh my, oh my melody, oh my malady. My malady is what he would re- repeat. So it was just an expression of pain, and then the song finally came back down. And there was a coda, and he's talking to Wally, and he says, Wally, you can have your glasses back. I don't need them. I don't really feel like going out tonight. And that was it. So we recorded it, and he had me just make a copy, just do a mix and make a copy onto cassette. We took the cassette, and that's when he instructed me to put all 24 tracks in the cord and just wipe it out. And he'd never done anything like this before. And I really kind of begged him to please, 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 just wait one day. Just wait one day. Just sleep on it. Just think about it because we had been working, you know, it was a typical long day. It was probably 20, 24 hours. So I said, just, you know, just sleep on it and can we erase it tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Um, but he wouldn't hear it. And that's when he said, if you don't do it, I will. And he erased the whole thing. He just wanted the cassette and that was it. But this was one of those things where I felt as a fan, that like, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. Don't do this. You're depriving us of this. Don't, don't do it. And he was also depriving us of a window into who he was. The song was a message of sadness, sadness and regret. But this one must have been close to the bone for him, and he simply did not want it released. But it's so odd to put that much care into something and then destroy it.
1: Was it a good song?
3: Oh, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> He was layering the piano and, and layering the backing vocals such that he was making a really big choir, making a big noise. Uh, it was Phil Spector-ish in, in that regard. Uh, it, was, it was big. Those choruses were really, really big. It was beautiful. A nice work.
1: I mean, Now we're talking a lot about the vault. Uh, you, you heard a lot of those songs that went in there. Um, are there a lot of great songs in
0: there or, or not?
3: Well, I think that we can say yes, there probably
0: are. We can only hope. For now, all we have is Prince's music and Prince stories. Let me tell you the best one I've got. I mean, for someone who grew up loving Prince, it is so amazing to grow up and become a journalist and get to cover him and have a moment like this happen. Okay, so in the late 90s, I go out to Paisley Park to interview Prince for the cover of this great little magazine called Icon. We sat in a conference room at Paisley and talked for about 30 minutes, and I wasn't able to record. I had to write down what he said on a piece of paper, but he had this sort of Shakespearean way of talking such that when I looked at my notes, a lot of them I couldn't understand. It was like, what, what does this sentence mean? And the interview itself wasn't that good. Certainly wasn't enough for a cover story. So I asked if I could email him a few more questions, and his publicist said yes, and I emailed 10 questions. And a few days later, I got back an email that looked like it had been written by Prince. I wish I had saved it. It had the the lowercase i's and the u's for the word Y-O-U, and I sent 10 questions. He did not answer all of them. The last question I sent was, will you play basketball with me? And that question he answered, he wrote, anytime, brother. So I said, oh, it's on. When the magazine's photographer went to Minneapolis to shoot prints, I went with him and I carried my own basketball. And at the shoot, I pulled out the ball and I dribbled around and I said, you said you'd play with me anytime, brother. So he tells his assistant, get the box of sneakers. And I'm like, oh, my God, is this actually going to happen? And next thing you know, there's Prince in a black scoop neck top, black bell bottom pants and red and white Nike Air Force Ones, white with the red swoosh, playing one on one with me on a hoop inside Paisley Park. And let me tell you, Prince is a pretty good little point guard. He dribbles, he moves, he threw the legs behind the back. He looks like a player. He looks like someone who knows how to play ball. And his shot looks good too. Now, he didn't sit around practicing jumpers that often. So there were a lot of rebounds on both sides. I think after 15 minutes, the score was like three to three, mostly thanks to layups. So we added in his keyboardist, who was about six foot two, and my photographer. Two on two, Prince and me versus them. Now, at that point in Prince's history, he was not known as Prince. He was known by the unpronounceable glyph. The media called him the artist formerly known as Prince. But there was no sound that you were supposed to use for his name. And you weren't supposed to call him Prince. I think I remember somebody saying, if you call him Prince, you'll get thrown out of Paisley Park. So, mortally afraid of calling him Prince. So we're playing two-on-two, and I'm dribbling at the top of the key, and I see Prince has made a nice little move and gotten free of his guy, so I zip a no-look pass his way. And I quickly see he does not know the ball is coming toward him. Oh my God, the ball is going to hit him in the face. I'm freaking out. So I have to say something. And this is all happening in like two milliseconds. And I yell out, Prince, because that's the only name I've ever had for this guy. But then I realize, no, you're not supposed to say that. So I sort of like, Prince, and like cover my mouth in the middle of the word, kind of hoping to catch the rest of the word before it gets out of my mouth. So the ball doesn't hit him. It goes flying past him. He runs off to get it. And he's walking back, holding the ball and giggling and pointing at me. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he goes, you didn't know what to call me. And he loved that. He loved sowing confusion. He loved creating mystery. He loved having everybody be off balance. So we went on playing for another 10, 15 minutes and he and I won. And afterwards, we walked together, just us, into this Airplane hangar sized room that held all his clothes from all his tours, all neatly hung up and arranged. And he said he loved playing basketball and he'd played in high school, but he really loved playing tennis. Now, let me tell you something tennis is my sport. I grew up playing tennis. I would Die to hit balls with Prince. And somehow, as I was daydreaming about possibly getting on the court with Prince, as if basketball was not enough, in the midst of that, he slipped away. It was almost as if he walked through a hidden door and then he was gone. I went to the front of Paisley Park to wait for him and I just stood there for like half an hour, just waiting to say goodbye. And then finally, a woman came and said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I, I just wanted to say goodbye. And she said, Prince doesn't say goodbye. Prince, for me, was the seminal artist of my youth. He was part of helping me figure out me. Your favorite musicians of your youth become part of your identity, part of who you are. And to see them die is like seeing a part of yourself die but we still have the music. The music is permanent and the memories can transport us back to who we were when we first fell in love. I'm Torre. Thanks for listening to Love City. Thanks for listening to Love City. Check out our episode on Adidas shell toes. What do you
1: want to know? I wear white shell toes right now. White on white. I got some red on red shell toes just to be fly. Same boss.
0: Our love of shell toes has a lot to do with a certain street famous basketball player who was also a big Harlem drug dealer, and with Run DMC and a certain night at Madison Square Garden where Run told everyone in the house, "Hold up your sneakers." And they did. And don't miss our episode on craft Chocolate featuring the Mast Brothers. We've always taken a lot of pride in being a principled company. When and if people question that, we take it very personally. And a helpful tutorial on how exactly one should eat high-end chocolate. Something I did not know before we made this episode.
3: First of all, when you were tasting
0: it, did you let it melt or did you chew it? Uh, I think both.
3: So if you just chew chocolate, you're never going to taste it. Embarrassing.
0: Love City was produced by the great Fanny Cohen. It's a Howell original and a production of Midroll Media. Love City is exclusively on Howell Premium. To listen for free for a month go to howl.fm and at checkout use the promo code love city that's l-o-v-e-c-i-t-y all one word love city put that in and you'll get a month free of howl and tell that to anyone you know who loves prince which means you'll tell everyone because everyone loves prince i'm toure thanks for listening